You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Thursday, May 4th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your home. Say, I did it again. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you're riding home with me. I've said that a hundred times. It's more than that. I mean, I've been doing this show. There's over 1,300 episodes. So I don't know why I've said, I am your host, Seth Dunn, you're riding home with me. I don't know why I've said that 1,300 times and all of a sudden I can't get it right. But I am your host, Seth Dunn, and you are riding home with me. I had to call it an early day at the office. I'm going to have to work some later tonight to make the time up. But i got to get home because my kids got stuff to do. My son's got a t-ball game, and I haven't got to watch very many of them. Because I've been either coaching soccer or at my other son's baseball games. So I get to watch his t-ball game today. I think this is only the second one I've got to watch. And my daughter has play practice uh, one of my one of my daughters is very coordinated, and I, don't know, I guess you could say she likes to get dirty. She doesn't wear dresses so much. I wouldn't call her a tomboy. She's girly. She likes to play dolls, but she's more athletic. And then one of my daughters, one of my twin daughters, I have three daughters, just sings all the time, all the time, just sings. And she's going to be in some kind of children's production of some kind of Winnie the Pooh play. So this is Tech Week. That's a thing in in the uh, world of drama, I guess, where you dress up and do the run-through of the play. She's got that tonight, and she's missed two soccer practices. We're going into crunch time, and she's missing our soccer practices. So <clears throat> I'm the coach. I can just sit her on the bench if I want to. Recreational league rules say that all girls have to play at least 30 minutes. Unless the parents say otherwise. I am the parent of two kids on the team. And the assistant coach is the parent of two other kids. So we can do what we want. And I look forward to doing what I want Saturday and uh, Sunday. Not Sunday during church. Wouldn't skip church for soccer. That wouldn't be right. But we got those final two. Well, not final two games, but two games. And I have some kind of hard candy in my mouth. I've had a scratchy throat the last few days, or last couple days. I don't know what it is. I've been taking my Zyrtec. But I cut through somebody's office today, and I, f- I found someone who has candy in her office. So this is some kind of generic lifesaver. It's a, it's a lifesaver with no hole. I don't know what you call that, but it's sort of the same thing. So you're going to have to forgive the, the clicking noise if you can hear it. It tastes like a Luden's cough drop. I probably need to get some of those. Oh, big news on the Christian commute today. We actually have a full show. Someone sent a question in. So I've got a question about uh, years in Genesis. So how exciting. We're back to the status quo of having a question. We'll get to that after, uh, after the Bible chapter review. And before the show topic, we're continuing the Through Seminary series. We're into Introduction to Greek Grammar. 2016 internet course 2016 internet course 
That's the semester. So we're in we're in the year 2016. Golly, that's seven years ago. Doesn't seem like long ago to me. And as always, we have the Bible chapter review. We continue in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Jesus has entered to Jerusalem. He's entered Jerusalem. I don't, I don't want to say to a lot of fanfare, but to a lot of talk and excitement. What does he do? Well, starting with verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Now, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament there. First, Isaiah 56. Second, Jeremiah 7. And you guys should go read those verses. Paul's, unpaul's. I'm sorry, go read those chapters. I read Jeremiah 7 today when I was making the note. It was just put a shiver up my spine, like, whoa. About, like, I've always known Jesus was referencing the Old Testament when I've read through the scripture. I've read the scripture a thousand times probably. And I always knew like, what the people were doing was wrong. And I knew he was because it's in the all caps and I knew oh he's referring back to the Old Testament about his father's house being a house of prayer. And you know as it says elsewhere, and not in this particular passage, but as it says elsewhere zeal for my father's house will consume me. This is Jesus fulfilling prophecy. But Jeremiah 7 is talking about the wickedness of Israel and the, the temple being turned into a, a den of robbers instead of a place for, for God's holy people and how they're acting. So it's, it's as if Jesus goes in there and sees that situation that's condemned in Jeremiah 7. So I'm going to chew up this hard candy. Just get it over with. This is the kind of thing you can do on a podcast. You can't do this on the on the radio. You can't eat and drink. I can. It's my show. So what's the first thing? Uh, he starts driving people out. Elsewhere in Scripture, it tells us he uses a whip of cords to do this. So this is... This is not him yelling at somebody like some Cobb County Karen on the sidelines of one of my soccer games saying, they're eight, they're nine, don't do that, when I'm sitting there going, ah, win. You know, this is not some Cobb County Karen making a stink verbally. Like, you, could, you should be ashamed of yourself. Jesus is physically, one might say, violently cleansing the temple. This is a physical act. He's driving out the people who are buying and selling. So what they've done is they've turned the temple into a place of commerce, into a marketplace to make money. He overturns the tables of the money changers. Again, that's a, that's a physical act. So you have to imagine there's these money changers. They're sitting there at their tables waiting for people to come up and exchange money with them. So there's probably stacks of money on their tables and uh, of the different types of currency. And Jesus just walks up. He turns their tables over, and all their stuff falls on the ground. 
So why are there money changers at the temple anyway? Well, what's happening is people are coming from all around the empire, uh, all around what we call today the diaspora. So as you know, the Jews were scattered when the northern kingdom was destroyed and then the southern kingdom was taken over and the temple originally destroyed and they they were scattered to Babylon and beyond. So there's all these people who were Jewish who don't live in the Jewish homeland under Roman rule. And some of them are what, what, what we might call, Paul was one of these, Hellenized Jews. And they speak Greek. They don't speak Hebrew. I mean, Jesus and his disciples are speaking Aramaic. But they do not live in the Jewish homeland of Jerusalem or of Israel. They don't live in the Jewish cultures. A lot of Jews do, but they don't. They're from other areas. But they've all come into town for the holiday weekend, for Passover. So just as we go to the airport now, I don't, we don't really do this anymore. When I was a kid, I went to Europe, and when we got to the airport, we had to go exchange our money to give American money for uh, British pounds or uh, German Deutschmarks or francs in, in France. Now they have the euro over there. But that was back when people still used hard money. The last time I went to Europe... I didn't do any money changing or exchanging at all. I just put everything on my credit card, and then there was a foreign transaction fee on there. Like, what do I care? I'm expensing this all. But if you go to the airport today, they still have, if you're in the international terminal, these money-changing stations where you need to exchange your foreign or your foreign currency for local currency. And, of course, what do they do? They charge a fee for this. So this was one of the businesses that had been set up in the temple. People are coming from all over the diaspora, and they're coming with their own money from their location. And they need local money, the local, if you will, Jewish money, to transact business in Jerusalem. And this is being done not in a marketplace somewhere, but at the temple. So what, they're, what these people are going to do, you may call them religious pilgrims, they're going to go in, let's say they got $100, and they exchange it for, for 90, I don't know, euros, and because there's the $10 fee, so now they spend their euros, and oh, they're going to buy a dove, because they're going to sacrifice an animal, because they couldn't carry a live animal with them on their journey. So you got to imagine supply and demand, demand is at an all-time high, because it's that time of the year. So these doves and animals to be sacrificed are probably marked up to oblivion. So people coming to the temple are, are getting fleeced. The temple has been turned into a tourist trap. And guys, I want you to think about this. There's nothing wrong with selling animals. There's nothing wrong with doing currency exchange. These are not inherently bad things. The problem is that they had turned the temple into their center of commerce. That there were money changers and people there selling animals. That's not what the temple is for. The Bible says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. The wrong thing is going on. And Jesus is incensed because that's his father's house. And he's making a commotion. This is not going to go unnoticed. He could stand there and say, I condemn all of this. This is bad. And people might say, you're right, Jesus. But he did more than that. As one with authority, he went and physically kicked these people out. So these people are going to be like, somebody just threw me out. Maybe I need to go call the police. They didn't have police. They had Roman soldiers. I guess they had some kind of law enforcement officers through Rome or, or through the Jewish rulers. 
But Jesus is causing a stink, a physical one. And then when you get to the part about the uh, turning the, the temple into a den of robbers, I don't think that saying it's a den of robbers because these people were being ursurious. That's a Merrill, that's a three dollar word for charging a lot of interest in a financial transaction. Or because they were gouging people, uh, selling them doves, it's because they were wicked. Where do wicked people hang out? A den of robbers. So where would a den of robbers be? Oh, it's out in a cave somewhere outside the city where miscreants hide their loot. Where wicked people convene because they're not fit to hang out in the city with the rest of society. They're brigands, marauders, they're wicked, and they have to hang out elsewhere. You know, like the like the pirate island and pirates of the Caribbean where all the scallywags and ruffians hang out. And what, what should the temple be? Should it be where all the holy people are or where the wicked evil people are? No. It should be where the holy people are. But they're not. Because people are, they have turned it into a wicked place by turning it into a place of commerce, into a market, by tourist trapping people. There, this is now something to do. Like how we go to the Kentucky Derby. Like well, I'm going to go to the Kentucky Derby and buy a big hat and drink a mint julep, or I'm going to go to Oxford and, and go to the Grove and tailgate and wear a pretty dress and a big hat and drink a mint julep. I'm, I'm, is there alcohol in a mint julep? I've never had one. I don't know. There probably is. This, you know, it's what a horrible Baptist example. But you know, these things that you do, like I'm going to go to Talladega and camp on the infield and, uh, and wear no shirt and jean shorts and drink Budweiser. At least they used to drink Budweiser until they had that man dressed up like as a, a woman as part of their ad campaign. And now nobody wants to buy Bud Light anymore. But you, they, it's the thing to do. Like it's a tradition. Like, oh, this is our vacation time. This is, this is just what our culture does. Like, no, this is Passover and this is the temple. This is a set-apart place for a set-apart time. What's wrong with y'all? The people themselves, the Jewish people themselves, all should have been disgusted by it. But they were so wicked that they weren't. But Jesus comes in disgusted and turns over those tables. Do you guys know you can Google this? Somebody went to Joel Osteen's church once, Lakewood, because it's a prosperity gospel church and they're heretics. And this guy got mad and he went over there. He started turning their tables over. He did. And it's one of those things like I, I wouldn't even I would not compare Joel Austin's false church to the temple, but I, I get it. Let me end the actual Bible chapter review right there, because the point of the Bible chapter review is Jesus is causing a fuss, and there's going to be reper repercussions for it, but he's fulfilling prophecy to do so. We're gonna we're gonna keep talking about. Uh, the cleansing of the temple, the rest of this pericope in chapter 21 uh, tomorrow, Lord willing. But let me end the Bible chapter review right now. And let me tell you, just in my life, not trying to eisegete into the scripture or spiritualize, where I've noticed stuff like this before. I remember when I was a teenager in Cartersville, it was a long time ago, and I went to church once, and there was some guest speaker there and I went out into the lobby, and he was selling his tapes in the lobby, and his books. 
And I remember being greatly offended by that because I remembered this verse. My father's house shall be a house of prayer. And like, why, why have we turned the lobby into a marketplace where this guy sells his tapes? And I know the, uh, the New Testament church building is not the same as the temple because what's the temple now? Our bodies are a temple. We're indwelt. But if you're talking about a religious building, and back then this was the religious building, probably a modern-day church building is more akin to a, a synagogue building of this time. But I, I thought, this is wrong. Does, not, does anybody not know? I mean, I know I'm just a kid. Does anybody not see how wrong this is? And I remember uh, when I was at Tabernacle Baptist Church as an adult, and I had just started seminary. I hadn't been in it long, and Jerry Vines came and preached. I was like, wow, this is Jerry Vines. I mean, I've studied this guy in seminary. He's one of the heroes of the conservative resurgence. And Jerry Vines gave this great, passionate, emotional sermon, as Jerry Vines is known to do. And this big-time invitation, you know, really putting putting the altar call on. And... I wanted to go shake his hand afterwards and say, oh, you know, thanks for everything you've done for the the convention, you know, sort of in awe of Jerry Vines. And I went back, and he was sitting at a table, and people were walking by, and he had merch. And you can go to jerryvines.com and buy all this merch now. He's got a logo. It's it's a shadow of him with his hand up preaching, and it's pretty expensive stuff. Like, books are $40. So you can buy CDs and books and They don't sell tapes anymore. They sell thumb drives with MP3s on them. That's what they sell. But he had his merch table set up. And I said, oh, you know, Dr. Vines, I just wanted to thank you for all you've done with the convention. And he was like, oh, you know, nodding, being nice. But it almost looked like he was disappointed that I I wasn't buying anything. And people were lined up to buy stuff. And the merch table was out in the fellowship hall. Uh, So Tabernacle Baptist has the sanctuary, and then over to the left, there's an educational building with a fellowship hall and educational space on the bottom floor. And that's where he was set up. And I was just like, why are you selling merch? Why? Like, it's almost like you get the pulpit. And when you're a guest preacher and you get the pulpit, not only do you get an honorarium, but you get a merch table out front. Like, it's an opportunity, and then all the preachers have merch they have CDs and they share, you know, they give each other each other's pulpits to sell their merch. And I, man, I did not like that, that there was merchandise in the church. And it always makes me think of this verse when people try to sell their stuff at church. Like, why are we hawking things at church? You should be giving this stuff away as a ministry. Like, take up a love offering, okay? But don't sit here and hawk your merchandise. And to this day, whenever I see anything like that, even if it's, you know, we're selling t-shirts to, to, uh, to dig wells in Africa, stop doing that. Don't make a pop-up shop in church. What's wrong with you people? So that's the Bible chapter review. That is a bit of spiritualized modern-day application. Have you guys seen this? Again, I don't want to eisegete, but... I mean, I really think there's some application there. All right, now let's go to the inbox. Thank the Lord somebody has sent in a question. It's the only one I have. I don't have one for tomorrow. And it is from Philip D. Glass. I don't know if his parents did that on purpose, but this is from Philip D. Glass. Out in Texas. And he says, Seth, in Genesis 6-3, God says he's going to limit man's days to 120 years. 
But then in Genesis 35, chapter 28, Isaac dies, and it turns out he lived 180 years. What's the deal? If God is this contradictory? God says earlier in Genesis that man is only going to live to be 120 years old. But then, clearly, there are people after that living beyond 120 years old. And I don't, I don't know if anybody now lives that long. How do we explain this? Is there a discrepancy here? No, there's not. I remember being in sixth grade Bible history class at Brown Middle School and reading through this and thinking, well, wait, wait a minute. There, there's people living longer because this 120 years is actually not the only time where, where uh, God says he's going to limit their year. So if you go through Genesis, man gets wicked, and God says, all right, they're going to be 150. Then they're more wicked. All right, they're going to be 120. They're more wicked. And all right, now they're going to be 70. You can read through this. I'm not giving you the exact numbers, but he keeps doing this. And I I remember like reading in the first couple, like Adam lives to be 900 years old and then Methuselah is 1,000 and you know, Seth is 600 years old and the people are, are living in, they have these absurd lifespans, the first people in Genesis Adam and his immediate descendants have these absurd lifespans and now nobody lives that long and I think the teacher said well they live that long because the effects of sin had yet to fully take in and now you know they sinned and of course they died because the Bible said, or it says that God said, if you if you eat of the tree, you'll die. Now, well, now they're going to die, but you know the the, the weight of sin, effective sin in the world is so great that nobody lives under, to 900 anymore. But yeah, they used to, and that's one of those examples. You're like, okay, that makes sense, but then you remember, like that does that's not really supportable by Scripture. It doesn't say that. You're you're you know, it's implied at best, but really that could be eisegesis. But then you have these statements, and then I remember after these statements thinking, well, there's, there's still people living longer than this. And even then, I said, I know the Bible is not contradicting itself. Because surely the person writing Genesis did not forget in chapter 3 that they limited it to a hundred that God limited it to 120 years. He, God, limited it to 120 years, and now there's people living longer. There must be some explanation for this. And even sixth grade me is like, I don't know what the explanation is, but there must be some explanation for this. And I've never given it much thought until Philip wrote in. But as I thought about it today, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it now. So Genesis 6 is antediluvian. Merrill, there's another $3 word for you. Antediluvian describes the period before the flood. So we are post-Diluvian now. We live after the flood. But the world was a lot different before the flood. We don't know exactly what it was like. We know it was destroyed, except for Noah and eight people on the ark and the animals. And Everybody and everything on Noah's ark was preserved. Everything else was destroyed. But why? Why was it destroyed? Because mankind was exceedingly wicked. And God was growing more and more frustrated with how sinful man was. So skip forward in the Bible some to where God's calling Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt 
and back into the promised land. And he says, the iniquity of the Canaanites is complete. In other words, these people are wicked, and they've been wicked for so long that now their iniquity is complete, and the time has come for them to be routed by the Israelites coming in and like destroying Jericho, for example, and, and killing them and taking the promised land back over. So God is sitting here, or sitting there, metaphorically sitting there. In anthropo- I'm anthropomorphizing him. He's sitting there in heaven, enduring the wickedness of man. And what does it say when he's about to destroy the world? That Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but mankind had become exceedingly wicked, and he was sorry that he made him. So he resolved to destroy them. So these these time limits that says man's days are going to be this, are going to be this, it's that is, I'm going to destroy the world. So when it says mankind's days will be 100 years, it's not talking about... I'm going to live 365 days, and that's a one that's one year, and all my days will be, you know, 80 years, 90 years. If I if I don't get sick or get into an accident, if I just live out my life, I'll probably live to about 92. Why? Because that's about how long my grandparents lived. So you could say the days of Seth done will be 90 years. And yes, and if we do math, 90 times 365 is how many days I will have lived. Like, no, it's the days of man in general, sinful man on the earth. God's going to wipe them out. So their days were numbered. And what happened? He wiped everybody out except Moses. Or not Moses, Noah. Everybody except Noah. So when you're looking at this stuff in Genesis 6, and you're reading man's days will be this, man's days will be that. It's like, yes, because God's going to destroy the world. That's talking about the coming de- destruction that was the flood, not what our lifespan is going to be. And it's easy to think that it's talking about how many years people live because they're living these absurdly long lives. Like Adam is 900. I remember I was riding with my friend, the corporate goon, in, in uh, home one day. Not, uh, He's not religious. And... I was answering a question about Genesis, and he was like, really? They lived that long? I'm like, dude, do you not know what Genesis said? But he didn't even know that the Bible said that they lived that long. So I don't know why Adam and them lived to be 908 years old. I have no idea. The textual critic, the skeptic, would probably say, oh, because these are supposed to be heroes of ancient literature, and these are exaggerated legends, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. They, they lived a long time, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die at 90. They lived to 900. But it has nothing to do with Genesis 6 saying man's days will be limited to this. That's talking about the coming destruction in the flood, and there's something thematic. Wicked, 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 wicked. Wrath, 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 wrath. Grace. Grace. And then Isaac lives to be 120 years old. Good for him. That's a long time for an ancient person. Because I'm lifespan in Jesus' day was probably more around 50 or 60. <coughs> but thanks for that question, Philip. I think a lot of people have thought about that. And I think a lot of people have had the reaction like I have. is like, this can't be talking about lifespan because it would be such an obvious mistake. Like, nobody writing a book is going to make a mistake that bad and put a plot hole in it that bad. And by the way, this is such an old book that's been copied over time. Somebody would just edit that out, probably. So the reason it's in there is because it's not a contradiction. Uh, it's not talking about personal lifespans. It's talking about the destruction of the flood. And with that, we will end the question and answer time. If you have a question about Christian theology and apologetics, you can write to SethDunn88 at gmail.com 
or dial 470-315-0875. The Christian Commute is your theological roadside assistance. Now let's talk about my summer internet course in 2016 of Greek grammar. So if you want to graduate with an MDiv from a Southern Baptist seminary, you have to take Greek 1, Greek 2, Hebrew 1, and Hebrew 2. And I think the titles of the class are Intro to Grammar and then uh, Language for Exegesis. So you have Intro to Greek Grammar and then Greek for Exegesis. And then Intro to Hebrew Grammar and then Hebrew for Exegesis. Because what they're trying to teach us to do is take the meaning of the text, exegete it, and then preach it to people. That's it. That's all. That's why we take the preaching class, the hermeneutics class, and the language class to do exegesis, interpretation, or hermeneutics, and then homiletics. That's it's all linked up to, to create theologian preachers. And unlike the church leadership and administration class, it's not some garbage class. This is something you're supposed to take. Like this is good. The Mandalorian would say this is the way. Okay. My friend Funkhauser has a, a MACE, a Master's in Christian Education. I call that a ladies degree. And you can get that ladies degree by not taking Greek and Hebrew. Because, listen, uh, language classes are hard. It would be hard to learn, I don't know, for me it would be hard to learn German. And English is a Germanic language. And you know, I never learned Spanish or French in school. I took Latin. But Hebrew is an ancient language and they don't even have vowels it's hard to learn greek is easier than hebrew but but these are the hardest classes in seminary so some people want to avoid them but there's it's really like there's no it's like calculus in and to get your business degree there's no avoiding this you've got to take it and i got all the way to the end and i was like all right I've taken everything but these languages and then an elective. I've got to take them. And I took it on the internet. I couldn't imagine taking these classes in uh, in person. I think I'd be like so bored. But I mean, it's a language class. Like you would take at any secular school. You could probably take this class at a secular school. But you're uh, learning uh, what we call Koine Greek. It's a certain Greek dialect. It's the dialect of... Uh, Greek that the Bible in the New Testament was that was written in. And sometimes it's called grocery store Greek. It's not classical Greek. Like the Iliad and the Aeneid would be written in classical Greek. This is the Bible is not uh, it's not a like a great novel or epic poem like those books would be. The Bible's letters, right? For the most part, the New Testament I should say, it's the letters, it's epistles. So they're they're written in what we call the Koine Greek or the grocery store Greek. But it's the same language rules. It's just a little different. I don't even really know how to explain to you the differences. I just know that they're there. And this class was actually um, facilitated by a woman, Cara Knowles. And they would not let a woman teach a systematic theology or a preaching class there. This is a language course. So they'll let a woman... My uh, interpersonal relationship skills teacher was a woman... Uh, and this language teacher was a woman because, I mean, it's language. It's not theology. And But even in the SBC world, you kind of raise your eyebrow with that. But Karen Knowles was the graduate student who taught the class. But the real instructor of the class was Bill Mounts. So Bill Mounts is a professor. I think he's a professor at Gordon-Conwell. 
he is sort of the leading evangelical Greek scholar in the world. So there's all kinds of biblical Greek scholars. Bert, Bart Ehrman is a Greek scholar, but Bart Ehrman is a godless heretic, uh, apostate actually. So you've got mainline Greek people, you've got Catholic Greek people, but Bill Mounts is sort of the world's foremost living evangelical Greek scholar. And uh, the, the course textbook was Bill Mounts' Greek textbook. And you could get flashcards, and there was a workbook that went with it, and there was even, which I thought was pretty neat, software where you could take quizzes it would give the words from each chapter and you'd have to alright what's this word oh that's Abraham I still re remember Abraham cause names are easy they're just the phonetic spelling <laughs> uh, I don't remember a lot of Greek words but if I see them sometimes it it triggers my men memory I'm like oh it's that Greek word and part of the package that you purchased when you did the class is you purchased lectures. You can get them on Amazon. I bought them on Amazon. I still have them. And they're lectures, video lectures of Bill Mounts going through his Greek textbook. So we were to watch those lectures, read the textbook, do the flashcard quizzes on on the internet, and then we'd take online quizzes, and we'd, we'd do our workbook work. We'd fill out our workbook. And I hadn't done a language workbook in forever, maybe since elementary school, or I guess since middle school when I took Latin. And, you know, I, I had a workbook for ninth grade was the last time I'd take, me, I had taken a language. I took Latin too in ninth grade. It had been that long. So you fill out your workbook. And we actually had to mail our workbook in for the teacher to see that we did it. She's like, well, do you want me to mail it back? I'm like, no, you can keep it. <laughs> but the first thing we learned was the Greek alphabet. So if you take Spanish today, it's the same alphabet, the same A's, B's, C's, D's, and E's. Same thing if you take uh, German or Italian, uh, pretty much any European language. I think Russian has a different uh, alphabet. Chinese, of course, and Japanese have different characters. But to take Greek, you have to learn a new alphabet. So it's not A, B, C. It's alpha, beta, delta, gamma, epsilon, iota, omega, omicron, pi, rho. I don't remember. I, I think I got that pretty close to an order. I, don't, I think there's 22. I don't even remember. It's been so long since I took it. So I memorized the Greek alphabet. And it was then that, you know, like, man, I should have pledged uh, a fraternity. I'd already know this. Because the only people I knew who had to memorize the Greek alphabet was when I was a freshman and people joined a fraternity. But those are basically drinking clubs and really no, no place for a fundy Baptist like me. So I mem we, we memorized the Greek alphabet. <clears throat> all those letters and their sounds. So to this day, I can phonetically read Greek. I may not know what it means. I cannot phonetically read Hebrew. We'll get to that when we get to Hebrew. Uh, but I, I can still sit down with a Greek text and sort of sound it out. Probably with the, the skill of a, a first or second grader reading English. I mean, I don't pronounce it exactly right. And there's some little rules in Greek like... Well, uh, whether a word starts with an H sound or not, like hoste, um, would be, or ha, like ha is the, ha theos, the God, um, there would be an apostrophe in front of the word for you to signal, oh, that apostrophe means, I think it's a backwards apostrophe, to pronounce the H. The little things like that you have to know. 
And it's it, there's stuff. It's, it's sort of like taking a uh, Latin class because you have to do the declensions and the the different cases. Like Greek has the nominative case, the genitive case. So in America, in American, in English, when we talk about possession, we'd say Seth's minivan. Seth apostrophe s. Well, there's no apostrophes like that in Greek. Uh, or it, this is similar to some of you who've taken Latin or, or Spanish. It would be the minivan of Seth. So in English, the word minivan is minivan. M-I-N-I-V-A-N, minivan. It's always minivan. Seth's minivan, the minivan of Seth. I drove a minivan. The minivan run me, ran me over. It never changes the spelling. But when you're taking uh, foreign languages, and, and Greek's one of them, there's different cases. So the nominative would be like the minivan ran me over because the minivan is doing the action or that is the minivan of Seth Dunn well that's genitive because I it's I have the possession of the minivan so you you learn the cases and there's different word endings for the different cases or letter endings I should say of the same word for the different cases so if you were looking in say Strong's Greek concordance I think they give it in the nominative they say this is a noun here it is in the nominative and you just got to know the declensions and you can get the declensions in um uh in a, uh, I've, the words escape me. Lexicon. <laughs> lexicon. So you had a lexicon too. Um, and the, a lexicon, like a Greek lexicon of the Bible, is basically a listing of every Greek word in the Bible. So when you hear that phrase, that's, that is one of the words in the biblical lexicon. It's there. So the lexicon has like, here's the basic form of the word, but it's used in this way. So, you know, nominative, genitive, vocative. Vocative is a case of direct address. So you learn that for the nouns, and then you learn the verb tenses. So in English, we have present and past tense. We put an ED on things. My, my little boy, Pierce, he's so cute. He's like, I runned there. You know, he always, he, he'll always add the ED sound on, on words. So we do that. That's grammatically incorrect. It's just cute. I, sorry. Don't you hate it when people talk about, my kids are so cute. Um, run, ran, jump, jumped. We do that. And that's the same way in foreign languages. But you'd, you'd have to know, like, what what is the verb tense? So there's the present tense. And then, then there's the aorist tense. Greek has an aorist tense, which is what you'd call a punctilar tense. Uh, similar to what we'd call a past tense. And they have a perfect tense. So you've probably heard tetelestai. All right? It is finished. So I think the verb there is telos, to finish. But tetelestai uh, is the, the uh, perfect tense. And when you have a perfect tense, Greek, like telos and but T-E, you, you put something on the front and put something on the end to get the perfect sense. You replete the ta-ta, ta-telestai. Jesus said that on the cross. It is finished. What's that mean? In the perfect sense. It's finished. Boom, forever. Not like, well, I finished with my meal, but I'm going to eat again tomorrow. Like, he finished eating. We wouldn't put that in the perfect tense. We'd put that in the, probably in the aorist tense. But to the perfect tense is a sense of this completion in the past. It is finished, ta-telestai. So you learn your your cases and your tenses for your nouns and verbs. You learn how to make things, uh, how to use things adjectivally. The best way for you guys to understand this would probably who've never taken Greek is to go to Blue Letter Bible and click on the interlinear. And you can click on the words. If you click on the Greek word, it tells you the tense. If it's first person or second person, whether it's a whether it's a 
noun or a verb, whether it's an adjective, whether it's a participle. Like here's a, here's a Greek participle. This is the kind of thing. Like uh, piste you on, piste you on. Uh, what is that? That's all the believing. Whosoever believes, piste, has. Let me think of this. For God. Gar hatheos for God so loved uh, hoste agape so loved the kurion no that's not right cosmon cosmon the world cosmon so loved the world he gave his only begotten monogene his only begotten son you can tell I had to memorize this in my Greek class and I had to rec- I had to me- not only did I have to memorize that John 3:16 in Greek I had to say it and pronounce it and record it and send it in I did this in France by the way at a speaking of money changing and traveling I was in France at a corporate retreat sitting in some old hotel room with no air conditioning going hoss ho pista you on in my southern accent so whosoever believes, piste you on, that's the verb believe. That's that's a participle believing. All pos piste you on, all the believing. So when you say whosoever believes, that's actually a verb in Greek. It's a, a verb, a, or it's a participle. A verb is, a, it's a verbal noun. That's what a participle is, even in English. So you learn how to to identify the participles. You learn. You learn like they're they're. Uh, I talk about these on the show all the time. Uh, the conditional, the first, second, and third order conditionals of the different the different meanings of if in Greek. All of that you learn in the Greek class, and you go chapter by chapter, listen to those Mounts lectures, filling out your workbook, and you have exams, and you're just on the honor system. You know the people. I hope everybody in seminary is not cheating on their exams because it'd be really easy to pass them because you've got the textbook with you and you're taking the online exam. You can like here's the word. You could type the word into Google and find out what it is and translate it that way. But you're supposed to be on the honor system, and I did not cheat in my Greek class. I made it through. Uh, but I don't. I bet people do. You never know, even in seminary. It's one of those classes, like if I was in charge, I might make people take it in person because you can't cheat. But on the other hand, like I don't think anybody has ever prepared a sermon and be like, well, I have to prepare this sermon and I can't use the textbook in the internet. <laughs> That's what I would do now, use the textbook in the internet if I was trying to do the Greek. Uh, oh, one of the textbooks you had to get for the class was a Greek New Testament. And you have to order these online. I've got my Greek New Testament in its little red leather binding from the, the Bible Society. And I think it's the fifth edition of it. And it's supposedly what scholars think are the, as to, close to the original text. Oh, by the way, the original New Testament was written in something we call Unical. In other words, it was written in all caps, like, like, like your mom yelling at you over text message in all caps. Uh, but... They, and it didn't have spaces between the words. They all just ran together in all caps. But if you have a Greek, if you have a Greek Bible today, they've spaced out the words and they use the lowercase Greek letters, not just the uppercase ones. We had periodic tests, and I, I think it was easier for a Christian to pass the course than a non-Christian, not because of the Holy Spirit, is because the Greek that we were translating was Bible verses. So these are Bible verses that I've read my whole life. So even if I couldn't translate the whole paragraph, 
if I recognize two or three words, like if I got, hold on, so loved the world. Oh, for God so loved the world. I don't know what the rest of this means, but I know for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. <laughs> for God did not come into the world, come into the world, or, the, or the, Jesus didn't come to the world to judge the world, but to save it. I mean, I just know that. John 3, 16, 7, I just know it. And there's other passages, too, that... You think about this, in your mind, you know the words of this passage. You might not even be able to say, well, this is John 6, or this is Matthew 29, or 28. You might not know that the letter and verse, but you've read it so many times in the Bible, like, oh, I know what this says, it's this. So as long as you know a few words, you can pass the test. I was filling in English words for Greek. I couldn't translate it. and I, But I, oh, I remember this. I'm filling in the blanks. Because, you know, hey, man, I'm a working guy. I had a full-time job. I didn't have time. If I was a seminary student, I would probably know, like a full-time seminary student, I'd probably know Greek a lot better than I do now. But I liked the course. I wasn't offended that there was a female instructor. And she was pretty nice. She actually graduated the same day I did. She graduated with her PhD the same day I graduated with my MDiv. Oh, and her name is not Kara Knowles anymore. She she's married. I think she's Kara Lee. She's married some Korean. There's she married a Korean guy, so she's got a, Jap, a Japanese name, an Asian last name. Now there are a blue million Koreans in Baptist Seminary. There's a bunch of Korean Christians, Korean Baptists, and Presbyterians. So that's good. I don't know why Korea is so evangelical, but they are. So good for them. Maybe it had something to do with the Korean War. I don't know. So that was my Greek course, filling out the workbook, doing my bill mounts, flashcards, practicing, taking my quizzes. There was a lot of quizzes. The quizzes basically mimicked the flashcards. Doing my tests. Uh, there was a time, there was a time when I could look at a Greek word and tell you the case and tell you what the ending meant. Not all of them, but most of them. I wasn't that, t- I mean, I think I, I think I got an A in the class. I can't remember if I got an A or a B. Um, but it was okay. And that was how I spent my summer of 2016, learning Greek online. And if I was a vocational pastor, I would probably go home and turn my Amazon account on and listen to those Bill Mounts, uh, Bill Mounts uh, lectures again. And by the way, if anybody out there just wants to learn Greek but not for course credit, you can do that. Anybody who wants to can buy these Bill Mounts courses and just go through it yourself. He's got a whole thing online set up. I think it's called technia.com, little children technia. But you can get this and I mean you can learn. It might edify you if you choose to do it. So I would encourage anybody with $200 to spare to try that. But I did for credit. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow, Friday. As always, God bless. And as always, remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to the Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to sethdunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.